gift that you gave us of sending your son to die on our behalf. God, I pray that if there is anyone here today that has not had that precious gift realized in their lives, that today would be today that they would come to the foot of the cross. In your name I pray, amen. 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 Please be seated. Thank you so much again for being here. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 13. The book of Mark, chapter 13. I am... Um, uh, I'm, this this has been one of the the most challenging sermons that I have tried to prepare in a long long time, and I trust that through that God will be faithful. His word never returns to him void, and we are confident this morning that if we will stand up and proclaim the word of God, it will accomplish everything for which God intended it. I do thank you for being here uh, today. Uh, we do have. Um, another Sunday of summer left after this, and then uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, we will begin to see this place really get full. So I'm excited to have you here with us. Uh, we do have Children's Sunday coming up on the 24th of this month, so uh, do make plans for that. Um, as you're turning, I also want to point your attention your bulletins. Uh, there's there's an announcement about prisoner packets. Um, and just an opportunity that, that you and I have to bless those who are incarcerated, that, that community that doesn't always receive blessing from the outside world. Um, if you'd like to give one of those, our church will be a part, the men of our church will be a part of a, a group of others that will drive down to Lee Correctional in December and pass those gifts out as a Christmas gift to um, uh, those who are incarcerated there. So I would encourage you, as we look for ways that we might proclaim the love of Jesus to a lost and dying world, uh, perhaps there's no better way than for us to reach out to those who are in not only uh, chains of sinful bondage, but those who understand physical bondage in ways the rest of us don't. All right, by now, hopefully you've made it to Mark chapter 12, or excuse me, Mark chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in verse 14, so please stand with me in honor of God's word. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand." Father God, I pray that you would take um, this passage of Scripture that, that sometimes appears to be murky. That, for, uh, that, Lord God, you would give us clarity. Lord God, that you would give us assurance. That you would give us confidence in the one and only Savior of all mankind, Jesus Christ. That, Lord God, you would keep us from being led astray. That you would ground us in the faith once for all delivered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever read a book and then saw the movie version of that book? Now, I know I'm giving up on my, like, my nerdy uh, stuff, but um, uh, for me, it's, it's often just terribly disappointing. I see some heads nodding. I could list several. The Green Mile ranks near the top. I've never seen such a horrible depiction of a book in all of my life. Except for one, without a doubt for me, at the very top is the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the greatest miss on any movie was Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, I grew up on the Lion King, the real Lion King, not the one that they just put out. It's terrible. Don't go. Don't waste your money. Um, the Lion King captures the fierceness, the ferociousness of a lion. Mufasa was a ruler to be loved and to be feared. Good, yes, but also ferocious and protective. We can contrast Mufasa with the Aslan character in the Narnia movies. And when we do that, we see Mufasa as strong, powerful, and even fear to be feared. And Aslan is often soft-spoken, 
and at times appears weak. It shouldn't surprise us because even as he made the movies, Liam Neeson wanted to make sure that the whole world knew that Aslan was, was not a character to be exclusive. It, it wasn't about Christianity or about God. It was just a good story. There's nothing in the power of Jesus in Aslan of the movies. As a matter of fact, there's not even anything in the power of James Earl Jones as we saw in The Lion King. There's nothing of the mysterious power and ferociousness of Lewis's character. It's captured pretty well when Mr. Beaver says, as some of you will remember, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here in God's Word, we have the book version, the real version of Jesus. He's the king, I tell you. But I want you to know that there are those who come in as the movie versions of Jesus that don't look a whole lot like what we see in the book version. They're tame. They're soft. They're weak. They haven't bled. And as a result, they're imposters. Sometimes the books seem boring and dry, and the movies seem so exciting with loud music and special effects. But let me urge you, as I believe Jesus urges, trust the book version and to reject the movie version. Because this is truth. With no mixture of error. And in it we find hope. This morning, this sermon is going to fall out a little different than what you would see most of the time. We're going to spend a significant portion of this message before we even get to the outline. So if you worry that I haven't made it to the first point after about 15 minutes, just take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. I'm giving you advanced warning, and if I had the outline to do over again, I would have just left you a giant blank space at the top and then sort of collapsed the three verses at the bottom. But uh, this sermon took me so long to pull together that by the time we had to go to press, as they say, to print the outline, I had to give you something that you could work with. So this morning, what I want to do is I want us to work our way through um, Mark 13, or 13, verses 14 through 23. And I kind of want to give us a, a lay of the land. I want you to know that this is a challenging passage of Scripture. I've joked with several people this week that if a Southern Baptist pastor wanted to get fired, this would be the best passage of Scripture for him to preach. Um, in Southern, They're supposed to laugh. Um, in Southern Baptist life, over the past 30 or so years, there have been two primary theological issues that have created division and separation in local churches. The first was, was the doctrine of the end times, eschatology, and the second is the doctrine of election. Those are the two things um, that have created diversion. Even 12 years ago, when I became the pastor here, those are questions that were asked of me as I was working my way through the process of becoming your pastor. And this passage of Scripture deals with both of them. As far as I know, this passage, along with the synoptic accounts of it in the other Gospels, is the only place in the Scripture that deals with the end times and with the doctrine of election all in one place. And so I'm going to tell you that if I had not been your pastor for 12 years with a whole lot of confidence that y'all aren't going to run me off, I would have probably been terrified to preach this message to you this morning. But as it stands, I think we don't need to be afraid of God's Word. We need to recognize that this word, though it may at times be difficult for us to wrap our brains around, is given to us for our good and for His glory. And I want you to know that this passage of Scripture that seems to be very dense, much like the book of Revelation that is often very dense, is given to us not to confuse us or to confound us. It's certainly not been given to us for the purpose of bringing division and distraction. Instead, this is given to us, you ready for this? For our encouragement in difficult days. Oh, we get so wrapped up in the book of Revelation, for instance, and in the doctrine of the end times, and we fight and we argue about it. Do you know who doesn't fight and argue about the book of Revelation and the doctrine of the end times. The church under oppression and persecution. 
Because the church under oppression and persecution doesn't have time to get wrapped up in the academic debates about whether or not Jesus is coming here or then or later. They've got to survive today and look forward to the future. Folks, I want to suggest to you today that the division that we've experienced in the American church, and it is predominantly in the American church, over these issues come about as a result of the position of cultural um, Christianity, the the position of, of cultural authority that the church has been given in the United States of America. Even if we look just to the UK, to our brothers and sisters in the English-speaking countries on the other side of the pond, they do not allow these issues to bring such great division. Why? Because the church is struggling to survive in that culture. They've got to allow some of the other things to fade to the periphery while they focus on the main thing. And the main thing is the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we wrestle through these things... I want you to do me a favor. I want you to listen to this passage, no matter how difficult it may be at times, as a word of encouragement from Jesus to endure to the end and to reject false teaching. And you're going to see once we make our way all the way through it that that's actually what Jesus' great intention was in it. So what do we see? The first thing we see right here is Jesus giving a warning. But when you see the abomination of desolation, now we see that and some of you went ahead and just zoned out right there on the spot. The what of the what? The abomination of desolation. This is the desecrating sacrifice. This is when you get the ugliest of the ugly in the holiest of the holy. You understand? That's what's happening right here. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, there's an interesting thing. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, um, in the red letters, we see in parentheses, let the reader understand. Folks, listen, Jesus didn't say, let the reader understand. Mark is writing this word to us. And he's communicating Jesus' words. And Jesus didn't look at the apostles and go, let the reader understand. Jesus is just teaching them. And what Mark is doing is Mark is reminding the people as they're reading these words of Jesus, hey, you're living in a persecuted time. It's a dangerous place for you to be. But I want you to understand what Jesus is talking about. Mark says, I'm not going to spell it out for you, but you're smart enough to fill in the gaps, okay? So um, when you see the abomination of desolation, now Daniel also warned about the abomination of desolation in multiple places. All the way back in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 9.27, and Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11, and a few other places where there's some allusions there, Daniel gives warnings about the abomination of desolation. Now, This prophecy from Daniel finds a few different fulfillments. We see this often in prophetic literature. In prophetic literature in the Bible, we often see double or even multiple fulfillments. So if we were to go, for instance, back to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, uh, we read in there that, that the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What we know is that ultimately that prophecy pointed to Jesus. But it's quite possible that in that day that that prophecy pointed to a young girl who had been uh, been a virgin, obviously, and and was betrothed and and conceived and bore a a king. So there's there's this double fulfillment that we get all, all, all over in the Scripture. And in this place, we see a double fulfillment. So Daniel finds its most immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in about 168 B.C. There in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering in the Jerusalem temple. Now, it was this that provoked what history calls the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt resulted in the only period of time... This is going to be a lecture for just a few minutes. The only period of time um, uh, since really the rule of Solomon... Uh, that, that, that the Jewish land was under sovereign rule. Well, it wouldn't have been since to- Solomon would be when it was united, but since the, the, um, uh, the Babylonian captivity, that, that the Jewish people were under sovereign rule, and it lasted for just about 100 years. Um, but Jesus now uses the same language as Daniel. Now, that when Jesus said the abomination of desolation, without a doubt... His hearers heard Antiochus Epiphany sacrificing pigs in this place. That would have been the most ugly of the ugly and the holiest of the holy. And yet Jesus points to a future time. 
Jesus says, when you see it, not when you saw it. Jesus uses Daniel's language here, but he can't be talking about the same thing. Jesus actually even appears to potentially be giving us a double fulfilled prophecy. The most immediate fulfillment for Jesus' words of warning are going to come in A.D. 70. And in A.D. 70, the temple is going to be destroyed. If we go back to last week's sermon, Jesus says, I tell you, you won't see one of these stones on top of another. Because Rome is going to invade um, Jerusalem. and, and, And when they understand, they're going to invade after a long siege. And after that siege, we don't appreciate siege warfare in our world today. The purpose of siege warfare in the ancient world was to starve the people into submission. And folks, when we say starve them into submission, keep in mind that as the United States of America, if we were engaged in warfare, we would see an outcry from the people and from the government for us to get humanitarian aid into a civilian population that was being affected by warfare. Even if we were at war with a foreign country, we could all imagine a situation where the United States of America, as they have done in places like Afghanistan, would be sending humanitarian aid into the place even as they were engaged in war. In the ancient world, there was no such thing. Siege warfare was this. They surround a city. They set up embattlements around the city. Nobody can come in, nobody can go out. They look for all the sources of water. They stop them up or they spoil them so that the water cannot be used. And then they just sit back and wait until the people starve to death. Understand that that process of starvation would eventually result in even cannibalism as the people turn to eating themselves to keep from dying of hunger. It was an abomination for the people because as the Roman soldiers invaded, they set up their tributes to Caesar. And it would be Caesar's banners that made its way into the holy place. Those were not allowed in Jerusalem during Jesus' time. But in AD 70, as the soldiers invaded, they would bring their banners to Caesar. And there would be an abomination of desolation as we saw Caesar's people taking their rightful stand in, or excuse me, their unrightful and unlawful stand in Jerusalem. But that's still not the primary fulfillment of this passage of Scripture. We know it can't be because Jesus says, understand, this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved for the sake of the elect, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. Jesus is speaking of a cosmic, cataclysmic event. Folks, I want you to know that when Jesus gives this warning about a great tribulation, he's talking about something that has not yet taken place. He's speaking here about a time that the Bible calls, literally, the great tribulation. There won't be much doubt about it. There's lots of speculation about what will be the abomination of desolation or who will be the abomination of desolation or who will be the great beast of revelation. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. When the time comes, I don't believe there's going to be a whole lot of doubt about who it is. Jesus says that he's going to, and I believe this now. I believe that this is what's going to happen. I believe that we're going to have the abomination of desolation where it ought not to be. And I believe that where it ought not to be is right in the holy city of Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the Holy of Holies. I believe that that will be the case. But we don't just have to try and piece this together here. Jesus is talking to us about the man of lawlessness. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. And if you don't know where Thessalonians is, if you make it to Timothy, you're too far. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Okay? Second, Thelo- that, second, Thelonians, second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the event that Jesus is speaking of. I am very confident. I believe that it is this very event that Jesus is speaking of, of the day when... The abomination of desolation, whoever that is, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, sets himself up. Now understand, when we speak of Antichrist, we often speak of Antichrist as capital A and lowercase a. Alright? So we kind of speak of Antichrists, and then we speak of the Antichrist. You understand? In as much as there are multiple times throughout the, the, the course of history where there have been prominent figures that have opposed the church of God, that have have put themselves up against the kingdom of God and against Jesus himself. And these people are rightly called Antichrist, lowercase a, as a title for what they're about. Okay, But this is capital A, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. The one who at some point set up his reign as the absolute opposition to all the things of the Lord. He will go so far, according to God's word, as to declare himself God Almighty. So Jesus warns of a great tribulation. A tribulation that is so significant that all of those who claim to be followers of Jesus and committed to the things of the Lord are going to find themselves on the outside looking in. Why? Because the moment that we refuse to bow our knee to the self-proclaimed God, because our commitment is to the God of the universe, we find ourselves in direct opposition to He who has set Himself up as the ultimate ruler. Folks, this is where the great tribulation begins. Jesus says, I want you to know, when you see this happening, go hide. This shouldn't be over-spiritualized too much. Jesus gives us the use of means right here. He says, I don't expect you to go lay down in the street and say, here I am, kill me. Jesus says, when you see it, you take your people, you run to the hills, and you hide. Get out of town. Do all you can because it's going to be worse than you can imagine. All that's right here in this. Now, Jesus warns them of a great tribulation. And this is where things get a little bit crazy. Is there a rapture here or not? See, I told y'all I could get fired. I don't believe so. Okay? I don't believe so. Now, in preparation for this message, I went this week and reread the entire book of Revelation in one sitting. Um, and, 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 and then worked my way through these passages and the passage of Thessalonians. Um, I just don't read the book of Revelation and see a pre-wrath rapture of the church. Now, I, I see a rapture, and we're going to come to that in a minute. Now, what is, we'll get there in a minute, but... Uh, instead of a a pre-wrath rapture, I see the triumphant return of Jesus calling His children to be with Him. But I do not believe that the church will be saved from the tribulation. I believe the church will be saved through the tribulation. I might be wrong. Okay? I might be. And some of y'all are sitting there going, this guy is such an idiot right now. Some of you, look here, if you're right, I'm going to high-five you on the way up. Okay, Boom! You're going to hear these words out of my mouth. I was wrong! And I'm glad I was wrong! Jesus, I'm coming! But the picture of Jesus' return in the rapture is, is best summarized back in 1 Thessalonians. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. See, I told y'all we ain't even got to the first point yet. But it's okay. I mean, my lunch is already fixed at home. We just got to warm it up, so no worries. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Let me read to you, okay? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, now I'm going to use some words that I stole from Alistair Begg 
to, to, to try and summarize this passage in just a minute, okay? Um, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay? For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command of the sound of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Okay? So Jesus will return. So the first word is return. The second thing, the dead in Christ will rise. So there will be a return. There will be a resurrection. Right? Um, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the air. There's the rapture. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's the reunion where we're all getting together right there. We will all be together with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And there's the responsibility. Okay? This has become a, this has become a, a, a theology of division. And yet we see right here, Paul says, the purpose of this passage is to encourage one another. Now, this is... The, well, let me just read what Leon Morris says. This is the fullest description of, of the parousia, the return of Jesus, that is, in the New Testament. And we, when we reflect on the little that is said here, we are warned against undue dogmatism about what will then happen. You can't go to any passage in the New Testament and get a more succinct summary of the, return, the second coming of Jesus than you can in this passage right here in 1 Thessalonians. Okay? It is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We have five verses that summarize it. Now, I believe when I read it, I believe in a, 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 a process, as I said, the return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. Okay? The return of Jesus, a resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the living. Why do we call it a rapture, by the way? That's, that's, that's from a Latin word. The, 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 the Greek word, that's, that's the Latin word, and it just kind of carried over in, in the English language from the use of Latin. So the rapture just means taking up, a grabbing up, or taking away. Um, uh, the rapture, the reunion there, and then our responsibility to tell. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay? There's a lot of people who think I'm wrong. John MacArthur thinks I'm really, really wrong. I didn't call him and ask him, I just know, because I listened to a sermon where he said I was really, really wrong. Okay, Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley think I'm really, really right. The idea of a pre-wrath rapture of the church doesn't exist in church history until the middle of the 19th century. 1830 is the first time we ever find it. Okay, And then after that, it's still not widely held until in the United States, or in, in, in the English-speaking world, we see the, 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 the coming of the Schofield Reference Bible and the Schofield Reference Bible um, just and many of you grew up with the Schofield reference about the Schofield reference Bible um, sort of uh, celebrates and, and really makes famous this idea of, dispens of dispensationalism, the dispensations of the church, and, and of this pre-wrath rapture of the church. Now, when we go to the New Testament and reflect on all that we read, I believe that Jesus' warnings apply to Christians, especially through the period of Great Tribulation. Jesus says that the time of tribulation will be so great that the hope of humanity, the great only and final hope of humanity, is God's grace in shortening these days. The Bible seems to suggest multiple places that the tribulation will last seven years, and at the end of that seven years, Jesus is coming back. As a matter of fact, even the people who disagree with me, who are many, about exactly when it is that Jesus, uh, whether or not the rapture will take place before the tribulation or after, pretty much everybody agrees that at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming back to take his bride. Okay? We know that. Right? We don't know exactly about what the rapture is going to look like, but we know that Jesus is going to return. Right? At the end of seven years, Jesus is coming back. And there's where we pick up at the end of Revelation. Jesus on a white horse, sword from his mouth, tattoos on his leg, blood up to the bridle of the horse. Listen, on that day, get this, there will be no question about who the Messiah is. Jesus is warning his disciples not to fall prey to false Christs. Folks, if we're looking for a Messiah that looks like Jesus at the end of Revelation, we got a hard time falling prey to something else. Last week we talked about focusing our eyes on Jesus and upon his word. When I read the end of Revelation, 
I can't imagine there's going to be a scenario where I'm going to be able to be confused. When Jesus comes back, it's going to blow your mind. Listen to what's going to happen. The Bible says that there's going to be the trumpet sound from the archangel and the dead in Christ are going to rise. Listen, that's going to be a little bit upsetting. We're not going to know what to do with that. Right? All y'all like, I'm going to know. I'm going to be like, oh, Jesus is here. No, you don't know. We're going to all just die right there on the spot. They're going to have to raise us up. Because if you're walking across that cemetery and all of a sudden the ground splits open and people start jumping up, nobody, your, your initial response is not going to be, praise Jesus. Your initial response is going to be, oh, woe is me. You're looking around. Do you see that? What? There's going to be this rapture. Or excuse me, the dead in Christ are going to be a resurrection. Then there's going to be a rapture. All right? Those who are still here are going to be caught up to meet them in the air. Listen, this isn't just going to take place in like one city. This isn't going to be the Camden event, the New York City event. We're not going to wake up and suddenly Tokyo was raptured and the rest of us are just standing here waiting around. This is a cosmic, cataclysmic event. And who's he coming for? This is the other part where I get fired. If I believe what the Bible says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Oh, Mr. Park, back up. Um, uh, if the Lord had not cut short the days for human beings, who would be sake? But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Who's he coming for? He's coming for the elect. Those whom he chose. Those belong to him. Listen, the most exclusionary truth about Jesus and about God's word is that universalism is not true. The reason that we must actively proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because not all will inherit eternal life. We are born in sin and separation from a holy God. And outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus' return is not a celebration. Because those who exist outside of Jesus' covenant community will experience destruction and eternal death at the return of Jesus. This passage of Scripture is fraught with fears for many pastors because the doctrine of the end times and the doctrine of election have created problems. But here's what we know. Jesus said these things to the church and for the church. And folks, listen to me. We must never be afraid of God's Word. I should have gotten more amens from that. We must never be afraid of God's Word. Sometimes I don't like what it says, but it is the authority. And it doesn't matter what it is speaking about. The purpose of this passage was to bring encouragement. The primary purpose was not to explain the return of Jesus or the doctrine of election. Which is why it shouldn't be the primary purpose of this sermon. Okay? Jesus didn't sit down and go, all right, guys, I'm going to explain election to you. So y'all sit down. We're going to have a conversation. And I'm, I'm going I'm to explain the end times so y'all get ready. How, how can you generally tell what somebody's primary focus is? Usually it's, it's either what they start with or what they end with. Jesus is at the end of life. Okay? Jesus is essentially on hospice right now. And, and, and he sees the end. He knows what's ahead of him. He's called his disciples in. And he's beginning to give them the things that matter most. I, I see this happen a lot. I walk into the, 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 the hospital rooms or, or, or the bedrooms of dying people. And, and as the pastor, they're often waiting for me to get there so they can share some things with me. Sometimes they're honest enough to say, when you preach my funeral, I want you to say this. Many of you have experienced the death of a loved one, especially the death of a parent. They bring you to their bedside. And, and if they're able, they want to tell you these are the things that matter. They want to reflect upon the things that were important to them in life. Jesus is fixing to leave. He's fixing to be crucified. He knows that when that happens, the disciples are going to scatter. He knows that even after his resurrection, he's going to have a limited time with them. And that he's going to then ascend to the Father. And he knows that when all that happens, they're going to be dragged before government tribunals. 
They're going to be dragged before religious councils. They're going to be in front of governors and kings. And folks, in the middle of oppression and persecution, they're going to be looking all over for somebody to save them. Why is it that title loan places thrive so much in communities that are racked by poverty? Because folks, when you don't have great security financially in the world, you need somebody to get you out of a mess sometimes. There's a reason why people who are experiencing great struggle and, 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 and trouble and persecution often quickly fall prey to false Christs and false messiahs because when your life is really, really bad, you're willing to hold on to anything that might make it just a little bit better. So the purpose of this passage is to warn his disciples. To warn them that false teachers would come and seek to draw them away. The teachings about election and Christ's return were never intended to be divisive. They were given to encourage and support the church. Jesus was warning the disciples about false teachers. He was warning them not to be led astray. And this morning, I want to give you three principles to avoid being led astray. Three facts about Jesus that are absolutely not true about false teachers. And so finally this morning, with that background in place, we're going to get to these three points. How is it that you can avoid being led astray? The first thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus loves. Jesus loves. Jesus didn't come preaching hate. He came preaching love. He came preaching hope. Jesus loved in word and in deed. Jesus loved all the way to the cross. His miracles were characterized by compassion. In fact, his arrival on earth was a testament of his love. As John, as, as John tells us in 3.16, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We read in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. We read all the way in the book of Romans that it goes so far as that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we were enemies of the cross, God loved us even in our sin. Folks, how can we find or, or, or discern between the true Christ and false Christ? The first thing we need to ask is where is the love? I see a lot of people claiming to be speaking a whole lot of things in the name of Jesus, but they don't seem to be speaking it with love. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us in chapter 13, what? That if we have all these things, but we have not love, then we're just a clanging symbol. Folks, let me urge you not to be taken away and led astray and caught captive by false teachers who do not love you who do not love the people of God and the things of God folks listen to me anybody that's claiming to be the Messiah should look like Jesus and the Bible says that he is love if we were to turn to Isaiah chapter 42 we would read that he is compassionate and caring the Bible says that uh, that Jesus is this suffering servant who is so gentle that he doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. That Jesus sees those candles, the flames in your life that are about to go out, and rather than coming by and just slapping it out and saying, I don't have time for you, Jesus protects it from the wind. Jesus protects you. He kindles the fire in your soul. Are you following after teachers who love you and love God's Word and love the people of God? Even more, have you been led astray by those who claim to be teachers of Christ or perhaps even claim to be Christ Himself who do not practice love? Beloved, I tell you, they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of my favorite things that is said often about our church by guests is I felt so loved and welcome. Jesus loves. 
If you're being led into hatred and discord, let me suggest to you that there is a very strong possibility you're not being led into the things of the Lord. You say, but Craig, you don't know what those people are doing. Folks, we can disagree in love. Do you know that? Do you know it's actually possible for us to disagree agreeably? We can. We can. Jesus loves. Number two, Jesus gives. Jesus gives. Now, I'm not just speaking against televangelists here, but you can take it for what you will. Jesus gives. Jesus gives life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus gives acceptance. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. How about this? Jesus gives rewards. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus gives revelation. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will you ready? Manifest myself to him. He will make himself known to you. And that's something, the more you love the Lord, the more you get to know him, because the more active he is in making himself known to you. Jesus gives friendship with God. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus gives joy as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be complete in you, and that your joy may be complete. Do you know that Christians are supposed to be happy people? If you're not, why? Jesus came to give you joy. Where's yours? Where is it? Jesus gives trials. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Folks, a commitment to Christ is not a promise that you will avoid troubles and trials and persecutions. Folks, a commitment to Christ is more likely than not an invitation for the hardship to come. So we see that Jesus loves, Jesus gives, and finally Jesus bled. When it's all said and done, ask this question, who's willing to bleed for me? Who gave it all? Jesus suffered for you and for me. He died so that we could live. All of the gifts that he offers are only possible because he died for us. Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar of God's temple. But folks, can I tell you that the blood of pigs and even the blood of goats and bulls and rams is not sufficient to atone for the sins of mankind. The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And can I tell you that the only blood that paid the price for you and for me is the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. Who gave it all? Jesus suffered. He died so that we could live. All of the gifts that he offers are only possible. You ready? Because he died for us. Folks, we believe everything that God's word teaches. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Son of God who suffered and died on our behalf. I believe in a resurrected king who's going to return again. I believe in the rapture of his children and the resurrection of the dead. I believe that he has elected people for his himself. But folks, when it's all said and done, all of those things that we see through a glass darkly will be made manifest on the day when we stand in the bright light of his presence. And all of it pales in comparison to this. Blood of Jesus that flowed down Calvary's tree for you and for me. Folks, one of the easiest ways that believers in the United States can be led astray is to get caught up on majoring in the minors. We can become Calvinist Christians or Arminian Christians or pre-tribulation Christians or post-tribulation Christians. Jesus called us to be disciples. Just plain, normal, loving, serving, evangelizing Christians who endure to the end. Who read the sign of the times. We're not reading about the blood moons and waiting for the one that shows up. Jesus says there's one way to know. One. 
He says, I don't even know when it's all going to happen. Look at what Jesus says. He says, pray that it won't come in the wintertime. Well, Jesus, don't you know? Jesus said, I don't know. Some of you looked at in life group this morning. Matthew, Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour. If he doesn't know the day or the hour, he doesn't know the season. Jesus says, pray that it won't come. But he says, listen to me. Because remember, all the way back in verse 3, verse 4, the disciples said, tell us, when will these things be? And Jesus says, they're going to destroy this, they're going to do that, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be earthquakes and natural disasters, the whole world is going to be in an uproar. And Jesus says, and in that moment, there's going to be a lot of people that stand up and say, I'm back, I'm Jesus. Paul even warns the Thessalonians, you're probably going to get a letter from somebody claiming to be me, and it's going to say, well, Jesus has already returned, so y'all just missed the boat. Jesus says, listen, guys, all of these things are going to happen. You're going to be drug in and persecuted and questioned and beat and challenged. The whole world is going to be against you. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so bad that there will be days when it seems like creation itself is rebelling against you. And Jesus says that's kind of what it is in the birth pains. But when you see the abomination of desolation where it ought not to be, when you see the ugliest of the ugly and the holiest of holies, Jesus said, then you know. Start the clock. Jesus says, and when you see that, get out of town. Go hide. Jesus says, I'm not looking for a hero. Why does Jesus not say, strap on your sword, grab your shield, and defend my honor? Because Jesus says that when you see the ugliest of the ugly and the holiest of the holy, you get out of town because it's not going to be long till I come back. And when I show up, There will no longer be a question about who is the king. Do you remember all the way back in Mark? I told you that when Jesus walked into the temple and he began to cleanse the temple and he threw people out, that what Jesus did is he put his foot down and he said, I'm the king. This is my house and I make the rules. When the ugliest of ugly sets itself up in the holiest of holy, set the clock because Jesus is coming back, riding on a white horse, leading the host of heaven. All of his people will be with him. The dead will rise first and then the living will be resurrected, will be raptured up into the air with him. And Jesus is coming. And the ugliest of ugly and the holiest of holy will meet the king of kings in the worst possible way. And in that moment, all of eternity will find its amen and its conclusion and its primary climax point. Because in that moment, the kingdom of God is not already but not yet. In that moment, the kingdom of God has come to earth and the king has taken his rightful place and it's no longer the ugly of ugly and the holiest of holies it is the holiest of holies taking its place at the holiest place and making it the holiest that ever could have been so what do we do what if we decided to be on guard because false Christs and false prophets will come What if we believed what I've just said, that at the end of all things, as Jesus is warning his disciples, he's giving them the things that matter the most. And what if we sit around and we go, well, we've already made it through the death, the resurrection. So what's the biggest thing? What do we do in these moments? Paul says, be encouraged. John said of Revelation that all who read it will be blessed. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do we do? We can sit around and argue about who's right. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? I like a good argument. We can debate, we can fight, we can divide. Or we can take Jesus at his word. The world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. We can major on the majors, discuss the minors, and get really serious about seeing the kingdom of God come to earth. 
We can avoid the false teachers and the false prophets and we can celebrate this. Jesus loves us. Jesus gave for us and Jesus bled for you and for me. And so this morning the invitation is very simple. Would you come? We're going to sing. Kevin, can we go back and sing that song we just did again? Can we sing There's a Fountain for the invitation? We were going to sing something else this morning. But if y'all will indulge me, we'll stand again in just a moment. And you guys sang it so well. And we'll celebrate. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus didn't come to create debates and divisions. He came to save sinners. To set you free. We were going to sing another song. And that song said, Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is calling? He's calling, but what He's calling you to do is to trust in the power of His blood to save you. This morning, would you come? Perhaps you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. Would you come? Perhaps you're here today and you don't need to come and talk with me. Perhaps today you need to come and maybe pray at this altar or maybe pray right there where you are. And perhaps you need to pray and, and ask the Lord to forgive you for the divisiveness that's been in your own heart. I've had to do that before in my own life. Perhaps you just need to pray, Lord God, wash me and make me new. Whatever it is the Lord's leading you to do. I can tell you this. He's certainly leading you to praise Him, to worship Him, and to sing out. For there is nothing more glorious than the willingness of our Savior to bleed and die on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, I pray that as we sing, that you'd be honored and you'd be praised. Father, you've blessed us. You've blessed us, Lord God, with the sacrifice of your Son. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't abuse that sacrifice by dividing and debating, but instead, Lord God, we would honor you by giving you praise and glory, by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all whom we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stand with us.